Welcome to Vision of Zion. Today is April the 2nd. It's Palm Sunday. We've just completed, uh, for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we've completed two days and approximately seven hours of content uh, with uh, the general authorities of our church. It's called General Conference. It's held every six months. And happily, sometimes it lands right on uh, the time of uh, Easter or Palm Sunday next week. Next Sunday is, of course, Easter. And there was a really wonderful emphasis placed on uh, being mindful of the events of the last week of the Savior's life that we celebrate this week. I have on the phone again with me tonight, uh, Sean, Sean White. How you doing, Sean? Good. Thanks for having me tonight, Craig. You bet. It's been a packed day and uh, we'll go as long as my computer battery lasts. Uh, my office power is down tonight, so we have to rely on battery power. <clears throat> but I'm excited to to have this. Uh, we're going to talk tonight about Isaiah chapter 18. It's only seven verses, but Sean has put a lot of time into these verses and uh, has given me some notes, and we're going to read it. It's, like I said, just seven verses. But, Sean, I thought we could maybe start by just talking about... Um, your feelings about the book of Isaiah and why it's important. Well, I started saying it a couple of years ago because I was seeking to connect my dreams and visions and walk with the Savior into scriptural things so that I could like have a basis or a, a solid ground of what I was seeing was verified in the scriptures. And so I was excited to read and uh as it started to finally open up to me because so many times I have read Isaiah and just like, it's the, I don't enjoy it because I couldn't understand it. And now it was opening up to me finally. I'll tell you a funny story I heard a long time ago that uh, reflected my attitude about the book of Isaiah and my distaste for it when I was younger. Um, Many of you know that in the book of Mormon, uh, one third of the book of Isaiah's 66 chapters are quoted in the book of Mormon. And especially at the front end, uh, Nephi refers to the book and so does Jacob. He, and, he, and he puts the teachings of his brother, Jacob in the book of Mormon. And we used to have it. We used to joke uh, as missionaries. We'd say, yeah, um, uh, someone took a shot at me uh, when I was a missionary, but the bullet stopped at uh, second Nephi. <laughs> Because the book of Isaiah was just, as a kid, you know, getting to the book of Isaiah and the book of Mormon, it would just stop me cold because I could not understand what he was talking about. And later I realized there were some wonderful stories and history and about the civilization of the Nephites and Lamanites, etc. that I couldn't get past because, excuse me, Isaiah was such a huge obstacle for me as a child. Um when did you first get interested in the book of Isaiah, Sean? Um, in about 2021, I started really studying it. And the thing that helped me is I would not only read the King James Version, but I would read Avraham Gileadi's version too. And um, I based mine today, you know, on my writings here of Avraham's because there's uh, some things that I like in the way he interprets it. But I've read other versions too. And 
I think by reading three different translations of it, that it helped me get the gist of it or the, the center thing, which started to really open it up for me in the language of it. Yes, uh, as I'll mention, as we mentioned before, I'll mention briefly, Avraham Gilyadi is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, but it wasn't always so. He went from, I think, his home country in Holland over to uh, Israel, where he became, I think he became a Jew. Certainly, he practiced like a Jew, uh, and then he lived in a kibbutz, and he studied the way that the, uh, the after the manner of the Jews, and then he was introduced to the Book of Mormon, and then became a convert to the current church that he belongs to. And he provided a really beautiful, sim simple translation of the book of Isaiah. And he has a website called isaiahexplained.com, which is super chock full of free information. And the book that I have on his translation also provided some keys to understanding Isaiah, which was, I found, like you, extremely helpful in unlocking the book. So um, you found that his, his he was helpful then for you. Yes, actually, in 2018, I went and read his book, Isaiah Decoded First, which helped me immensely understand. Uh, it's kind of, to me, written like a, Isaiah, an Edgar Allan Poe book where, you know, you there's, all, there's always this symbolic stuff in there and you never use, you use a code name or a, a, a name from something else that means something else. And so... I, I really did not like reading Edgar Allan Poe in high school, but <laughs> it, I can see how it prepared me in a way. <laughs> well, something you said at the beginning is that you went to the scriptures to try and make more sense or to find a context for the things that you were seeing, right? Yes. Yeah, I find uh, also that if I get a spiritual impression or what I think is a spiritual impression— it's extremely helpful to go back to the scriptures and see if you can find validation for those spiritual impressions, because it's kind of like the scriptures become a second witness, or in maybe some cases they can correct a misunderstanding. But I, I understand the process, and I, I encourage our listeners too, if you get impressions, it's really helpful to go to the scriptures, and sometimes they will open up to you in a way you've never seen before. You know, I like that story, Craig, that you gave on your mission where you would randomly open scripture to something and see if you could find an answer uh, and how that helped you. But um, I know many times in mine, I can randomly open to things when I'm troubled and things. And even though the world's not saying that thing, all of a sudden I'm calm enough to hear the answer I'm seeking for at times. Well, there's so much that we can draw from in the scriptures. Let's let's uh, focus our attention once again to the book of Isaiah. And why did you feel in our first really dipping into the book about the last days that we ought to cover Isaiah chapter 18 as opposed to, let's say, starting at the beginning of the book of Isaiah? Well, I see it as very pertinent to our day and the, the years, the close years ahead of us here as to what's happening around us and Maybe if we could start in this way, might, others might become interested in trying to find it in their own lives and what it speaks to them and how they can get answers for their own families and their own stewardships to help their families. Okay. I'm going to make a statement about the book of Isaiah that I think I have gleaned from uh, Brother Gileadi, 
as well as my own impressions, but he's really the one that got me thinking this way more than anybody. And that is this, that the book of Isaiah, which is 66 chapters, is basically a, a history of the Israelites, which were the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom was Israel. <clears throat> and Isaiah was born in Israel. And it's my belief, my understanding, that what he did in describing the last days, because it is about the last days, that's why it's so important for us today, <clears throat> because there are patterns and there's also, he, it seems like what he did is he took uh, countries, he took maybe even cities, he took figures from the history, history of his time, which if I remember correctly was around 750 B.C., Anyway, he was taking those those events, and he kind of took kind of like taking uh, current event clips, and he tried to paint the future using current uh, tensions between countries. Country names had certain meanings and certain leaders, and he kind of cut and pasted these events in a way that would describe our day. Now, is is that how you understand uh, what he was doing as well? Completely. I think okay. it's good to understand that we have not only him acting as a prophet during this time, but we have many others, and I don't have all their names here in front of me tonight, but to think of him as one of many prophets during this time that were prophesying. Okay, so... Um, the one that stands out to me and the, the, what I recall Brother Gileadi suggesting is, you know, what country is like Egypt? What country is like Assyria? What country is like, and, and there were other players there. And I came away with the clear impression, and I think he might as might as have said it in as many words, is Egypt really is a paradigm or a label for what is now the United States of America. Uh, okay. And then what about Assyria? Um, when you talk about Assyria uh, interacting with, let's say, Egypt, who is Assyria in modern day? Well, I, I hate to pin it on exactly one country, but I have seen it as essentially two countries coming together. But Assyria was typically to the north of Israel, and they led away captive the people of Israel. And so we could look at them today as Russia and China, and I feel very comfortable in saying that. Okay. So let's turn now to Isaiah 18, because it appears to be extremely relevant to our situation today. And if you don't mind, Sean, I'll read the verse, verse or verses and then allow you to elaborate, okay? And then maybe I can ask some questions. That'll be great. Okay. Isaiah chapter 18, verse 1 and 2 and I'll be reading, this is the King James Version, correct? No, this is the Avraham Gileadi translation. Oh, this, oh, that's even better. Okay, that's great. Okay, so this is going to be Isaiah 18, 1 and 2, and this is uh, Brother Gileadi's translation of the book of Isaiah. By the way, just a little side note. Of all the books that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were none that were more copied and more copies found in those scrolls than the book of Isaiah. Just throw that out. Okay, so let's go to verse verses 1 and 2. Woe to the land of buzzing wings beyond the rivers of Cush, 
which sends emissaries by sea in swift craft across the water. They say, go speedily, you messengers. Go to a people perpetually on the move, a nation dreaded far and wide, a people continually infringing whose rivers have annexed their lands. For me, this chapter is focused on the United States. The United States has been dreaded far and wide, and our people are constantly on the move compared to other countries. We fly all over and try to um, influence other countries more so than any other country. We have infringed our will and our pattern of bureaucracy on more countries than any other nation. He is asking in this also that his righteous messengers prepare to carry his message of righteousness. In the, This is based upon my dreams and visions of what this means here. Interestingly enough, <clears throat> I've been told by... Um, people that I that I uh, that are, have been in the military that one of the things that has made uh, the world the modern world function has been the United States of America specifically after World War II uh, we became kind of the global superpower and our Navy is what has allowed uh, free trade between various countries throughout certainly the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Rim, and probably the Atlantic Ocean as well. But it's always been the navies that have allowed for um, this type of uh, commerce to occur. So this, this I find interesting when it says, which sends emissaries by sea in swift craft across the water, um, and that we're on the move perpetually. So let me say it a different way. I heard a this uh, um, expert talk about how very few countries have all the necessities to survive and prosper in a modern world. Um, that's why we had British and the British colonies, because the colonies that they set up couldn't function without trade with countries who had the basic four things. And I don't know if I can get them right, but they were like, uh, um, you know, good soil to grow food, um, oil, and coal, and iron. And if you had those four things, you could become uh, independent as a nation. But most places on the globe, the islands of the sea, um, a lot of marginal um, countries, they don't have all of those things. And so they have to trade. And so trade only can occur if there's you know, not a lot of pirating, not a lot of piracy. And if you have uh, open waters and you have protection, so the ships can go between one another and share goods. And what's made the global economy so prosperous is that we've been able to engage in this free trade across the waters and the and the mainstay that has allowed that to happen is the United States of America. Do you see yeah. any problem with any of that that I've just described? Not at all. A good dear friend of mine who studied the Constitution and the rise and fall of um, governments had made an interesting note as far back as he could see that when a country had corn, that they were able to have extra time to uh, do other things like build up great buildings or temples or have free time on their hands. And that's another indicator that I've always looked for is their ability to have corn, which is an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the, cor the word corn <clears throat> 
has a broad application. It also includes like wheat and other grains. When you say the word corn anciently, it wasn't just, you know, maize. It was also other forms of grain, correct? Yeah. So you got the buzzing wings. Mm, is that aircraft? The land, the water land of buzzing wings beyond the rivers of Cush. Yes. Sends emissaries by sea um, in swift craft across the water. Certainly very swift. Um, we're not talking about, you know, sail boats that rely on sails. Go speedily, you messengers. And and you're right. I mean, this power that has been exerted by the United States, you know, can be used for good or for or for ill. And it sounds like towards the end, it's a nation dreaded far and wide. Well, I would say that's changed. Uh, the United States has been traditionally loved and respected. It's the place people wanted to come. And I suppose dreaded and feared or dreaded far and wide by enemies. But it sounds like people are starting to turn against maybe abuses by this United by the United States. When you start or, looking today at uh, the policies and the things that are going on, the blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, the controlling of uh, growing crops in different areas as this the United States has joined into what I call the first beast. They are trying to have an agenda which they could control the whole world. And this thriving or this thrust to control this whole world has caused many other countries to suffer. And one day soon they're going to awaken to their plight and realize that it was unrighteous to me in the last few years that the United States has tried to exert in controlling and getting the world on a one uh, one monetary system under their control. Well, we see you say in the future people are going to wake up, but I I think uh, I think that's a little late to say that uh, in the sense that you know BRICS is forming a another economic uh, alternative to the um the backup currency being the US dollar is now being shunned and there are major countries BRICS which is the acronym that was formed which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China and others are signing up to get off of the um the the US dollar as the you know global backstop currency so yeah i think it's already happening Sean but I, I see these countries like Germany and I was just watching a, a deal on South Africa and the struggles that they're having. And um, it's, you know, when they start to see the lies that have been told them to control their economies and things, they're going to, I mean, they're just barely starting to see it now, but when they see the full effect, they're going to be angry and they're going to be frustrated that they've been put down. So a people continually infringing, well, we're doing that, yeah. whose rivers have annexed their lands. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, this is, uh, I think your your uh, uh, interpretation, what you've been led to understand this United States is uh, very fitting. Let's go to the next verse, uh, Isaiah 18.3. All you who live in the world, you inhabitants of the earth, Look to the ensign when it is lifted up in the mountains. Heed the trumpet when sounded. What's that, Sean? 
I had, I, I just love this because, you know, as a child and stuff, when I heard about this enzyme stuff, so many people had different opinions. So I went and looked up in Hebrew what the word enzyme meant. And I, forgive me for pronouncing this badly, have Ness, which is a lofty signal as a column or a high pole. That's the Hebrew standard. of it. That's a Hebrew yeah. pronunciation. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. And it stands as a signal or a column or a high pole, a standard or a signal or a flag placed upon a mountain to the to point out to the people a place of rendezvous in the interruption of an enemy. And this is the Hebrew definition of this word. So I love going back to when I don't understand a word or how it fits to see where it came from in Hebrew. And so to me in this verse, God is wanting us to focus on looking for the servant that Isaiah describes as opening the path for the Savior to come. We can think of this person like John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Savior to come. God is saying to us, be ready, listen, and follow his words. And um, So what you're saying is that someone has to plant the ensign. Someone has to plant it. And that is the Latter-day Servant that is described in other chapters of the book of Isaiah? Yes, and we can see that there's a period of time where the this servant works quietly and nobody has any idea, idea who he is. And then there's a point that I see in the midpoint when our Heavenly Father announces to the whole world, this is my servant, listen unto him. Now, it is just almost like echoing through everybody's heart and things when they see his picture, when they see something about him, that their heart just like this loud voice within their heart just says, he is the servant, listen to him. And uh, okay. I long for this day that's going to be pretty special. So this is the Lord, the trump sounding is the Lord drawing attention to the ensign that is being um, lifted up. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Got it. And uh, it sounds like, uh, I don't know, is, is the ensign that's being lifted up, is that like a rallying point? Is that an, is that an uh, indication of a gathering occurring or gatherings occurring? Yes, actually, yeah, later on in Isaiah, as we go through some things, I, it talks about the servant lifting his voice up and saying, basically, we have this new country we formed with this new government, this constitution that uh, honors all men, creed, and of all their faith. And we have safety, and we invite all of the world to gather with us into safe areas, as, the, as our Heavenly Father has promised, where we can be free from the tribulation of this world and free from the attacks by the enemy like the king of Assyria would impose upon us. So does that occur after some of the tribulations? In other words, when, let's say, if the country goes into collapse or there's the world government that's being proposed, goes into collapse, or people are seeking a different standard to join, is what's the timing of that? Well, we know that the first three and a half years are to shake the believers in Christ to the point that to see if they are solidly mounted, firm in their um in their beliefs in God and Christ, that they are not swayed by money or other people. And then there's the second half, three and a half year period in which the servant is given power to destroy the wicked. 
and it's no longer just the wicked destroying the wicked, but the servant is actually destroying the wicked. And this comes, as I see it, right in the center between the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. But it also comes at a time just prior to the king of Assyria invading the promised land. And so just many people would not normally heed this person's voice if they're not prepared and ready to listen to what the servant says or don't feel this awakening within their heart and this draw to this. They're not seekers. So I do see a similar pattern. I, I see a pattern similar to what you're describing. And what I've said on this podcast has been, I see kind of three phases um, in the judgments coming. Uh, the first phase appears to be um, man versus man, <clears throat> the wicked destroying the wicked. But then what I see is the Lord not liking that and interrupting it with nature versus man to try and humble man and get them from fighting with one another. And then ultimately um, God's judgments through his servants, whether there's boots on the ground or angelic uh, intervention, or what I believe would be calling down the powers of heaven because it has to be done by someone on the earth. I believe is the pattern. Um, anyway, if, do you disagree with that pattern that I've described or is that, is that accurate? That's very accurate, and I would encourage everyone as they're looking for signs to help them to look for the pattern of three, whether it be financial drops, whether it be uh, wars, there's like three wars, and everywhere you look, if you can't find a pattern of three in the upcoming days, then you're missing something. You're, you're missing a point somewhere. Okay. Let's go on to verse four. For thus said Jehovah to me, I will watch in silence over my dwelling place when the searing heat overtakes the reapers and when the rain clouds appear amid the fever of reaping. That's a quite a special verse in, in what it's addressing there. God's saying that he will watch in silence as the people go through their trials and tribulations during this period of time that he won't open his voice, nor will he have the voice of the servant open up. And this is during the time when we are seeing famines and, uh, and looking to harvest the crops and the car crops are not able to be harvested. So we are, you know, he's silent and we're just alone in a way because we're being tested. Just like when we go in to take a test, the teacher's silent for a while. Mm, nice. I like that analogy. So the Lord is going to forbear. He's going to allow the testing. And I have a very strong impression as we talk about this, that, you know, this silence is not an act of disinterest. This is a, this is a carefully planned, uh, let's say time of judgment or separation where we're tested, right? Uh, the Lord doesn't intervene. We kind of tend to whine and complain, uh, or not take it well. I think about Job and how Job, you know, never cursed the Lord through the things he went through. And but this is all what my impression is. This is all carefully orchestrated. This is not just God's disinterest or apathy. This is God going, okay, this is what the people must go through to bring them to repentance and to separate the wheat from the chaff. Exactly. I wanted to add here that in reality, this is an open book test. We have the scriptures in front of us. 
and we could ask the Holy Ghost. And that's why I think we need to develop this wonderful relationship with the Holy Ghost that we've been encouraged all of our life to listen to the promptings and things in that way to help us. Because as, as we take this test, we can look to our scriptures and we can ask the Holy Ghost for prompts and understandings during this time. Well, that's a very important clarification. I think I left it on the wrong note. Thank you for bringing that up. So what you're saying is that, you know, God is always accessible, um, but globally as a as a as a test this was going on these uh uh uh, apparently no rain um uh droughts um poor crops and but we can reach out to the lord and he will answer us in our prayers so that's i'm really glad you clarified that yes okay let's go to verse five and six of isaiah 18 for behold the oh, excuse me for before the harvest when the time of flowering is past and set the blossoms and the set blossoms are developing into young fruit they will cut down the fruit bearing twigs with knives and remove the new branches by slashing all shall be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the land the birds of prey will feed on them all summer and the beasts of the land all winter so as I have seen this verse, during this time period, God is saying to Isaiah that our crops will fail or cease to produce during this time, and that man may not be able to use the harvest, that the wild animals definitely will be like the birds and other things eating them. Let's take, for instance, as we look at this year in the spring of 2023, we've had the northern end of the San Joaquin Valley in California when the blossoms were flowering and setting up there, they had three inches of snow on those blossoms. Their crops and the, you know, the the almond orchards, the lemons, the oranges, stuff were, the blossoms were all wiped out in the northern half of it. <clears throat> Let's look for an instance on the southeast United States at the current time. They were three weeks ahead this year in uh, blooming and growth season. And then we've had this tremendous cold front come down and this weather extremes come. And I don't know how this crop is going to be. And in the last week and the week before, we've had terrible uh, hail and uh, tornadoes go through the country, just ripping things apart. And the people in Idaho and North Dakota and Montana their fields are have so much snow and moisture on them, they can't plant the wheat this year, at least at this time. There, I'm sure that as soon as it eases up, they'll try to plant. And so we can look to these type of things as we seek to understand when and how this will be fulfilled. Hmm. Well, that's a lot of food for thought. I, I want to throw out a couple of, of uh, questions here. We'll ask one question. It says that they'll cut down the fruit-bearing twigs with knives. Does that mean human intervention in intentionally destroying crops, or is that just a, um, you know, a language to describe what the what the weather conditions are going to do? I have seen a lot of people interpret this as as people, even the king of Assyria, as cutting them down when they come in, but I I don't feel good about that. I see it more as um, allowing these storms to come through, and the hail will definitely strip off the leaves and strip off the fruit causing it to fall on the ground and not produce yeah and, uh, frost can definitely 
hurt these things. But, you know, so I just don't, I don't know, as I've prayed about it, and I've, the things that I've seen, I don't feel comfortable with this interpretation of that. Well, there are two other interesting phenomena that are occurring. Uh, one of them is, of course, the lack of production of fertilizer, which I think was coming from Ukraine. And then there's this opposition to, um, uh, what's the form of fertilizer that has allowed crops to, you know, produce tenfold over the past century. Um, We've seen nitrogen that we so depend upon for our crops is actually made from natural gas. And when we cut back on natural gas and uh, the, it really hurts. So they've made laws like in uh, the Danish people right now are really protesting this because they say they can't use it on their fields and so forth. And there's other countries that have stopped allowing them to use nitrogen, which in fact has since the 1950s allowed us to produce on a given acre of ground 10 times more, whether it be fruit or wheat or whatever. So we've grown dependent upon fields that are high yielding and high producing. And uh, I know there's some restrictions on phosphates too, but we all look to nitrogens. And so far, the studies on cutting back nitrogens are just beliefs. They have no actual studies on um, on the, the the nitrogen is poisoning our oceans or things like this. It's all, a, I feel that it is. And so we have these foolish notions that we can just do this and we can survive or we will go to another means, you know, of producing crops. It's, it's going to be all of a sudden slam. I don't see any replacements for the types of things that are causing high yields. There's no replacement for them that I can see. So we're looking at, you know, massive um, food shortages, in my opinion, unless things turn around, combined with these natural disasters that are occurring. And the other thing I wanted to mention was there's some really great shows about <clears throat> how uh, bees are moved around the country in order to uh, time, they, they time the bees' arrival. They bring them on trucks and trains to places such as California when the almond blossoms are are ready for pollinating and the amount of water i can see standing in some of these orchards that are you know several inches deep and they've got these beehives sitting there that are you know under a foot of water uh combined with the fact that the apparently the pesticides are killing a lot of the bees so they have to continually replenish the bees with new hives new queen bees to to try and um overcome the substantial numbers that die and uh it's a struggle and they have to move these bees to different places as the weather warms the same group of bees or you know different sets of bees get moved around the country um so they can pollinate all the different foods crops so you know we've got all kinds of issues here with the weather and even maybe, I don't know, railroads, but all this stuff that's going on is, I'm sure, making it a difficult season for trucks to transport these bees to their locations that they need to be in timely. So a dear friend of mine that I grew up with is in the 
top 10 largest beekeepers in the United States. This year, he told me that in the San Joaquin Valley, where there's so much production and things, and especially the focus on almonds, but um, they were short of pollinating these crops, 200,000 colonies of bees. Mm. That is huge. And the reason they're short is because they're dying off from mite infestations and other diseases and uh, and problems in that way. Um, Canada, for instance, Trudeau has banned uh, them being allowed to import bees from other countries into Canada. And so they can't even renew the bees that they have. They have to depend upon there. So when they die up there through the winter or in different ways through these things, they can't replenish what they have. And we're seeing a real collapse. Uh, Many people, you know, used to take a canary into the mine to know when to run out because the air was too bad to live. Well, the bee is a lot that way. And when the bees start to die, you have to start wondering how good it is for us to live. The bee, in fact, was among the Jewish people is believed to be the only thing that Adam and Eve were able to take out of the Garden of Eden with them. And then we know the Jaredites traveled with bees to America in their barges and so forth. So um, the bee is a lot more important than what we realize with pollination to our world and to our crops we definitely take them for granted um and their and their function and their purpose and uh it's troubling i i I saw also those little mites that feed on bees that's that is a big uh one of the big problems is is in the hives is that as well as the pesticides that are killing bees and uh so we it's challenging here in our four hives that I have with my son-in-law, all four of our hives died through the winter, and I know they were weakened from mites. Let's read this again. For before the harvest, when the time of flowering is past, and the set blossoms are developing into young fruit, if they even get to that point, I guess, they will cut down the fruit-bearing twigs with knives and remove the new branches by slashing. Well, that sounds like it could be hail. All shall be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the land. And the birds of prey will feed on them all summer and the beasts of the land all winter. So, you know, not for human consumption. That's the point there. Well, Sean, we have one more verse here in uh, Isaiah 18. I'll read it now. At that time shall tribute be brought to Jehovah of hosts from a nation perpetually on the move from a nation dreaded far and wide a people continually infringing whose rivers have annexed their lands to the place of the name of jehovah of hosts mount zion this is that mean verse and uh, i see it as another country bringing a statue or a monument to the united states in the place they believe where Christ will soon come. And this is a tribute to Christ to remind them and to help remind us that if we are to truly possess this land, we must put God first in all that we do in, in our business dealings, in our home and everything. And we have truly lost our way at this time and are ripe for destruction because this covenant was given upon us. So 
I think that we could easily overlook another country bringing a monument and placing it here dedicated unto God and to Christ who gave us this land. And so if we're not watching and watching the news and praying, we might not see this happen, but it's a wonderful marker right here to help us to understand where we're at in Isaiah's timeline that he gives us. So you're saying that, so the word tribute, now, is that the statue? Tribute is a statue? As we go on into, um, which we won't talk about today, but uh, I believe it's chapter 19, they actually talk about five cities changing their charters or five cities um, coming up and putting God first in all that they do. And then they have two monuments or statues erected, one at the borders and one in the central part of the United States, which are also a devotion to help us to think about putting God first in our land. And so when I saw this in a dream or vision, I saw a foreign country coming here with uh, some kind of a monument. And they had written upon that about something about putting God first in all that they do in honoring God. And it was to help us in America to remind us of our covenants and to bring us back to this point and being from being worldly and prideful to a point of reminding us that we need to put God first. Mm, okay. Is it going to help us to refocus our attention to the Savior? It will for those that are watching. For others, okay. they'll be more focused on the wars and the rumors of wars and the okay. peace being taken from this land. Do we know or can we talk about um, who the country is or is that for another another time? I think that's for another time. Yes, I have seen okay. it. But, um, I just I want think, to point. Go ahead, please. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just uh, I think that this is so important that we watch for signs and watch for the fulfillment. But in doing this, I think that as we pray about it, things will be brought to our front on news stories or different things that wouldn't normally come up because I've had this happen to me many times. So what I find interesting is, uh, I won't do it now, and I haven't done it with this chapter, but for those of you who've never heard of the term chiasm or chiastic structure, it is a Jewish literary form <clears throat> where the first idea appears in the first part and then it reappears at the end. And as you narrow it down, there's a central, central point in a chiastic structure. It's interesting that the first verse and the last verse share common elements, which leads me to believe that perhaps Isaiah 18 is a as a chiasmus with a center point, uh, which would be um, uh, silence. The the silence and the uh, and the crop failure, which are kind of parallel. Sometimes the chiasmus, chiasmus will narrow down to one point, and sometimes it'll narrow down to two points that repeat themselves in a different way. The Lord's going to be silent while there are uh, heat overtakes the reapers, and then the next verse is the harvest is going to basically fall flat on his face. So there are two, there are two parallel ideas, and you work backwards from there, and that's the center point. So the center, the central point of this chapter is. Um, because of the conduct of this of this nation, 
there's going to be uh, a famine, uh, simply put. And it's for, uh, as Sean is pointing out, for a purpose. So uh, it's unfortunate that, I, I guess you be careful how I say this, I, it seems unfortunate that this has to happen if we repent and if we live the gospel, maybe we can avert these things or we can minimize their impact. I Sometimes I feel like we can't actually avert the things that are predicted, but we can certainly um, minimize them considerably through righteousness. But this is clearly here. And I do think that uh, your your insight that this refers to our country, the United States of America, uh, seemed, the shoe seems to fit very nicely here, unfortunately. Yes, and I, I love that point about the chiastic structure because I've, I'm not well versed in that, and uh, but I, you know, I'd like to learn more. But I did see that in, definitely in chapter 17 when I was reading it the other day. I'll tell you a little story about this uh, for our listeners. So. From the uh, from members of our church, how this came about. So, a man named John Welch, also known as Jack Welch, I actually uh, uh, went to one of his classes. He was my business associations law professor at BYU when I went to law school there. But he his in his real life, <laughs> he's interested in the gospel like very intensely. So I remember he said, I think it was when he was on a mission in the '60s, he was taking a class. And they were talking about this Hebrew literary structure called chiasmus. And he said, I just, yeah, I wonder if that is in the Book of Mormon, because that could help establish the Book of Mormon, what, you know, came out of uh, people that were Hebrew, people came out of Jerusalem, and maybe I can find chiastic structure. And so he went back to the Book of Mormon, and he absolutely found multiple examples of the, of this literary structure where... Um, if you if you were to number sentences, it'd be like, kind of like this. It'd be like A B C D E F G, and then it would go backwards from G and go F E D C B A. So you know, and you and you look at the center point. What's what's that? You know, G, or in some cases a parallel. And I could give you amazing examples from the Book of Mormon that use classic structure. One of the best ones is Alma thirty six, when you have Alma describing his pain and suffering that he went through spiritually through the repentance process when he was uh, approached by an angel and told, if you want to destroy yourself, go ahead, but leave my people in the church alone. And then he went three days in darkness and suffering and all this agony in the verses, the first few verses. And then finally, he hits upon remembering his father and others talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And then in the opposite, going backward, you've got the joy, the incredible amount of joy, exactly opposite. And it's, it fits to a T. It's a very long and detailed chiastic structure, but there are many uh, in the Book of Mormon. And of course, they're also in Hebrew literature and Isaiah. Uh, we could go on and on about chiastic structure because uh, I've studied it for a number of years. But uh, Alma 36 is uh, one of the crowning examples and so beautiful because it focuses on repentance is when the change occurs, when the Lord reaches down and forgives us. He can strike into insignificance all of the pain and the sorrow that we feel um, prior to turning our lives over to Christ. 
I, but as we close here, I want to talk about Matthew one twenty three, that should help give hope to the people. Behold, okay. I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake, and you should also hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So he's saying to those that are truly seeking God's voice, the elect, that they will hear the voice through the Holy Ghost and will not fear. And there will be wars and rumors of wars, but these are to humble those that have truly not sought to hear our Heavenly Father's voice. It would be unjust not to give others the opportunity to humble themselves and turn their hearts back to God. So I just want us to all keep this on our hearts to, I mean, you listeners and things are seekers. You are seekers of God's word. You are the elect. Well, thank you for that note. We'll end on that note and encourage everybody to, to tune in next time when we cover uh, some more of the writings of Isaiah, especially the ones that apply to our day today. Thank you very much, Sean. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. This is Bye. Vision of Zion. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very much.